What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to Nightmare Success in and Out Podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. Today, we are actually changing things up a bit because I don't have somebody here that was an ex-inmate and did not go to prison. But what I do have is I have a criminal defense attorney here who is the talk of the town and really the talk of the nation right now, Joel Swartz. Joel, welcome. Brent, uh, it's good to see you, and I appreciate you having me here. Well, I really appreciate you coming, and actually, Joel's with me, and we're not on YouTube because we're not filming this on Zoom, so this is good. This will probably sound better, too, but so if anybody's been anywhere around the TV set um, in the last uh, six weeks, Joel's book, it's called Bone Deep, uh, is actually written with uh, Charles Bosworth, Jr., and it's, it's about a case about Pam Hupp. And the thing about Pam has been an NBA, NBC series here since uh, March, which is really an incredible series. But Joel actually represented Russ Ferrara in the, uh, in the case, which we're going to talk about because it's an unbelievable it, – it, it reads and you see it like fiction, but it's a true story. But a little bit about Joel. Joel's kind of a, a, a very interesting guy. He he's um, he is a criminal defense attorney, but uh, he went to University of Texas. Uh, actually, you went there for undergraduate and law school, right? I started out at UCLA, sort of pursuing. You did that start? Yes, wow, that's I, not in here anywhere. That is I've done all this prep work, Joel. Well, I was UCLA. Only, <laughs> I I loved California. I thought that's where I wanted to be, and. I actually went with my roommate who was swimming in the NC2A championships to Austin yeah, and fell in love with Austin. And I thought immediately, this is a place this is that I could go to school. And that was back in 1981. And boy, was it a wonderful place. Uh, I was, I moved there in 89 and I felt the same way. It's like tripled in size since then. I want to read from the back of his book here, just a little bit about Joel, because I think they put it in pretty well here. Joel Swartz earned his law degree from the University of Texas of Law has spent 33 years as a criminal defense lawyer in the St. Louis region as a principal in Rosenblum, Swartz, and Fry. He's been selected to the annual super lawyers list. He's a member of the top 100 trial lawyers for the American Trial Lawyers Association and is a lifetime member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He's appeared on Dateline NBC, 60 Minutes, CBS Morning News, CNN, Fox News, and all over the place. He has been all over the place. And you've done, uh, you know, you're in St. Louis, but as I was reading, Joel, you've been all over. You've done cases everywhere from where I can see from Colorado, California, all over the place. But interestingly enough, you know, you your story is interesting because – you went down to University of Texas. You started, I think, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The, was it the Men of Texas calendar? That You have done your research. Uh-huh. Um, I was chosen to be in the UCLA, Men of UCLA calendar, okay. back in 1980. And they then found out, and I had decided I was going to transfer, so I was excised from that calendar. <laughs> and I got to UT and realized, uh, I think at that time there had only been three in the country. There was Michigan State, UCLA, and USC. And I thought, what a great opportunity, uh, not only to make some money, but to meet 
women. Sure. So what I did is in I Texas, I assembled women from all walks of life throughout the University of Texas and had them put together a panel and pick the guys they wanted. I to love be it. <laughs> and uh, it, fortunately, the thing sold. It was about the I think the fourth in the country. We were on the cover of Newsweek, and it sold all throughout the state of Texas, I, and it enabled me to pay for quite a bit of my schooling, which was wonderful. That is wonderful. Because we had a men of uh, men of Mizzou calendar, but that, that came after the fact. I think they all started doing it after they found that this was all happening and people were making money with it. And um, but So you, you kind of were in that world of making money and, and creating kind of an entrepreneurial life for yourself. And then I thought it was interesting that you went and, and looked at law as a kind of a baseline for you. It was a fallback. I was in Austin. I graduated from the business school, and I had no idea what to do. And I had interviewed for some jobs. I had some decent offers. For example, Sitco Petroleum gave me an offer in their management program. Well, they wanted you to learn from the ground up, literally. They were going to start me working in a 7-Eleven. I think I had to be there for 90 days. And I looked at that, and I looked at ultimately the end result, and it just wasn't me. Still didn't know what to do. I did have this dream in the back of my mind of acting, but I also have this responsible side that's like, I, you know what, I, that's not something I can do. So I decided the best course of action was, okay, I'm going to get a law degree, and moreover, I'm going to find a way now to spend three more years living in Austin. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it worked out, and then I graduated law school. I came back here home, which is home, to St. Louis. I took the bar, and I left the next day to go out to Los Angeles. <laughs> That's great. So you took the bar and just left. I left. And uh, everybody who takes the bar is very, very nervous about uh-huh. the bar results. The bar comes out on a specific day. And you can't, you, there was no online to check in back sure. in the 80s. Sure, the 80s. So I had forgotten that the bar results would come out. And somebody, I started hearing this person passed, this person failed. And it was about a week late. I called in and said, hey, uh, this is my name. And they said, Schwartz, uh, I, I don't, oh, there it is. It's like, <laughs> Okay, great. I passed. I hung up, and that was that. That was it. I had I didn't get sworn in. I had no intentions at that time of practicing law. Ah, that's just crazy. So you go out to L.A. Your big dream is is the to become a movie star, and if I think your family's kind of in the has some background in that with the community theater and that. So you start waiting tables as a person who has a law degree, but it wants to be a movie star. And then something happens, a strike. There was a writer strike and this would have been in 1989 and it went on and on. And I had made a little bit of progress. I was getting further at auditions and I was meeting people and things were going pretty well. As the writer's strike persisted, it just became drudgery. I, I would get unruly patrons, people who I'd serve. And I started thinking, you know what, I'm no longer a struggling actor, I'm a non-working lawyer waiting on tables. Uh, I didn't change my mind at that point in time, but what did happen is I ended up coming home because all I was doing was waiting tables, and I came to St. Louis, I think, to visit to just stay here for a couple of weeks. And during the course of those weeks, I ran into Brad Kessler, who was in the middle of a murder trial. And I ran into him at dinner one night, and he said, you know what, I think you might like this. Just come join me. So I went and I spent a couple of days watching him try the case. He's a great attorney, by the way, and, and a cool guy. Oh, he's, a, he's a wonderful yeah. attorney. I don't know that he actually practices anymore, but yeah. consequently he did end up 
being one of the attorneys representing Pam Hub. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it all came full circle. Um, at any rate, he talked to the public defenders. They called me and asked if I would come down, and it was sort of an alark. I went down there, uh, walked into a room with, I think it was over 20 people waiting to interview me, offered me a job on the spot. <laughs> and it was like, you know what, I, I, I need to think about this for a little. They wanted me to start the next day. So uh, they were ready to go. They were ready to roll. Um, I said, I, I need to think about this. Give me a few days. I, I don't even live here. I live in Los Angeles. But so, you were the calendar of Texas guys. So I was the that, calendar. That could follow you. Yeah. yeah, and that's what they wanted to see during the interview. <laughs> um, it was a little crazy. Uh, it's still a big joke with the people who interviewed me. They, uh, so they offered me the job, and I then decided, okay, that's, I don't know how long this strike will go on. Maybe it's time to give up this dream and move on with life. And I called them back, and I said yes, and I committed to myself that I was going to try it for a year. One year. And here I am. 33, 33 years, years later. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So let's fast forward a little bit, Joel, because I know, you know, you've had a lot of different types of cases and, and interesting cases. I read the one where you had, because uh, this isn't the first case where you've had somebody who was innocent, uh, the baby case where the, the baby's head was, um, the skull was bigger and it would move the brain and the, the family, somebody actually contacted you that wasn't a part of the case, the Brock Myers, I think was their name, and gave you information that actually freed the family from everything that they were under. Is that correct? I Adam? have absolutely no idea where you're getting information, <laughs> but it is 100% correct. Um, yeah, wow. Um, I didn't even know there was publicity surrounding that case. Maybe well, it was, was some. Yeah, I ended up getting some information, not anonymously, but somebody had nothing to do with it, contacted me. And ended up getting a couple of doctors involved. I had that research. I met with them. They wrote some reports. I took it to the prosecuting attorney's office. And this was against Bob McCullough's office. And Bob and his staff did the right thing. And the charges were fully dismissed. Which doesn't happen a lot. But, I mean, the fact that you had, you know, and then you had the expert. And then they've, the, the amount of times that that happens was so few that they really had to look at it. And, but I can't imagine what that family would have thought, you know, because they probably went through hell you know, with their kid and, and having to take lie detector tests and everything else that went along with it. But going into this, this is big time. I mean, you, you, and I think Joel, you were contacted. Was it somebody that you had worked with before and years before that contacted you about Russ? When I left the public defender's office, I spent a very brief time, three months, six months at a firm in Clayton. And they had a team of secretarial staff and I you know I had met all of them and I got along with all of them well and then I left and there was no contact whatsoever and then 2000 I guess it was early 2012 I got a phone call uh, and she it was Mary Russ's cousin yeah said look do you remember me and I think I said yes I didn't think didn't I know. actually remembered right. her and she told me what was going on with Russ Faria and I had seen some of the publicity and to me what I had seen and what had been reported was guy killed his wife sounded bad stabber and uh i think i had heard rumors that there was blood all over him and i also think i heard a rumor that he had confessed yeah so i was coming in for damage control at least that's what i thought at the start yeah i think the other crazy thing about because looking at this case it's so interesting first of all i mean the fact that this person was stabbed 55 times um I mean, I can't, three times is a lot. 
to stab somebody 55 times. But the thing that I find is really interesting, first of all, is Pam Hupp, who's played by uh, Renee Zellweger in the, uh, in the series, who Renee does an incredible job. I just find it so fascinating that they talked to Russ for 32 or 36 hours or somewhere around there, and they had time to go back and check all this out while he was talking and they talked to the four friends. They saw the guy on camera. He was wearing the same clothes. Uh, he stops by Arby's. He, I think he stopped like three or four places and he couldn't have been there, but they never ever looked at anybody else. I mean, I know that they always look at the husband. I mean, that's, but don't you think that's unreal, Joe? I mean, you were in the thick of it. Had Russ called me when he was arrested. Yeah. I would have said what any competent attorney says. Stop talking. Stop talking. Tell him you want a lawyer, mm -hmm. and we'll sort this thing out later. Mm -hmm. What he did was he never actually realized he was a suspect. And as they showed in the series, he was eventually Mirandized. Yeah. They, they didn't do it at the start. No. He, and he was a suspect from the first moment that they showed up on the scene. They brought him in, and by talking to him what he was able to do is give them every single place he went. And had he not done that, who knows what may or may not have happened to the videotapes where he was pulling and getting yeah. gas. He stepped outside his car for about three minutes and got gas. Yeah. Well, they knew the time he was there. They were able to get that video showing that not only was he there, like he said, but he was wearing the identical clothing that he was wearing when he was arrested later that evening. So he gave them all the information they went out and they conducted a, what I would call a pretty thorough investigation. And then they redoubled their efforts. They actually went and had different people talk to the alibi witnesses. They separated them. They took them to police stations, interviewed them on tape separately at separate police stations, confirmed everything that he was able to tell them as well as his cell site information. Then for whatever reason, to this day, I still can't explain. They took different square pegs and attempted to fit them in a round hole and that didn't one didn't fit so they tried another square peg and another square peg as we started the trial some two years later I still didn't know if they were going to attempt to say the alibi witnesses were lying it happened during the course of the time he claimed to have been there or they were going to say he got home and he did it at that point in time both of which were impossible right well the other I mean they also in in part of that trial even went to the so far to say that maybe those four people were involved, his friends were involved in helping him cover up this scene that happened at his house, which is just <laughs> beyond belief. Well, that was never, there was never any evidence for that. There was nothing to indicate that in any way, shape, or form. And I mean nothing. And then the prosecutor, Leah Askey, got up in closing argument and accused those four people of being complicit in this murder stating one went so far as to drive by the Arby's to pick up a receipt right. and then came home and brought it to Russ. Well, the things that the jury considered, I still to this day can't figure out because that receipt that they're talking about, it wasn't in his pocket and it wasn't in his house and he didn't direct him to it. It was crumpled up in his car yeah. with two empty wrappers. Right. It's, it's really difficult to grasp the concepts that this jury discussed when they initially convicted Russ. I can't imagine, Joel, what it would have felt like. You know, I, I went through six years of all this stuff, but I can't imagine as an attorney. That's why I like having you on here today because you're coming, you, you've, you don't sit where I sit, but you've been in situations where you're sitting by the person going through the nightmare. Uh, 
Did it seem like at the time that the whole world had gone upside down when you were in that courtroom? I mean, did it feel like that every single person had lost their mind that was part of the other side? They had lost their mind or they had no mind to begin with. I would, it, it got to the point where I was uh, insolent. I was insulting. I was doing everything I could to try to get the judge's attention. Yeah. I went so far as to say, actually, at one point in time, I have no idea what to do to gain your attention to make you listen to me. Maybe if I just stripped down naked and were <laughs> banging my head against your bench, You'll pay attention to I, me. Would, I would get your attention because the rulings were like something out of... Out Is of it all pretty state. accurate to what we're seeing on, on the, uh, the it, NBC it, series? It, it is accurate, but what's being seen just scratches the, the surface. surface. The depth of the incorrect rulings, the depth the depth of the corruption with these police officers. Um, the one thing that was... What, what was going through your head when you went into the office that day with the judge and ASCII, and it was just casually dismissed that, no, we're not allowing anything in as far as PAM and this uh, insurance policy? or what, what, were you, what was going through your mind? Great question. The, uh, she filed this motion. I looked at the motion. I thought, this is garbage. It's not worth a piece of paper it's written mm -hmm. on. And... As we're walking in, Leah Askey turned to me and said, you know, if the judge rules in your favor on this, well, I may have to reconsider these charges, which tells me she at least has an inkling. Sure. Maybe Pam Hupp had something to do with this. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so because the judge is absolutely going to rule in my favor because there's no... No reason all, not to. There's no reason not to, and all the law is in my favor. So we go in, we have an informal hearing, and I get notice in the mail about a week later that she ruled against me. And then, okay, I, then I realized, all right, this is what we're dealing with. So then I filed a motion to reconsider, and we had a big, long hearing on the record. I stacked 100 cases on the bench in front of the judge to the point where she couldn't see me anymore. That and wasn't in the, the series. No. no. Uh, I mean, this was a long, drawn-out yeah. hearing, and she ruled against me, and I just couldn't believe it. And I talked to a couple other people who I consider to be very, very well-versed legally, and they all said, look, I doubt you're going to lose this case, but if you lose it, you get to do it a second time because mm -hmm. it's such... It's, it's so, so bad. It's, it's so bad. Yeah. And then what's even worse is to rub salt in the wound. As we start the trial, the prosecutor got up and she said, this is about greed. Russ Faria killed his wife to get his insurance proceeds, and I went ballistic. And I approached the bench and I asked for a mistrial. I wasn't granted that. I asked for the jury to be instructed to disregard. And the judge then said... Mr. Schwartz, I ruled that you cannot get into the insurance proceeds. I did not rule that the state couldn't. And I looked at her, and I, well, the first thing I said was, that's fine. The door is now open because yeah. they have gotten into it. And, and the judge maintained a ruling that I couldn't get into. It, and I thought, okay, this, the world has turned upside down. It's gone down. upside down. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, then, I mean, the, I mean, you can just see it. I'm, I'm assuming it's got to be weird to watch you being played by Josh Damal. <laughs> Um, which I would love to be played by Josh, Josh Jamal. So, I mean, I, that's, I mean, weird in a good way, but is it strange to see you in your, basically your life, which is a big case played by someone who's basically being you mouthing your words? It is. It's, it's somewhat surreal. I've gotten used to it now. Yeah. It's weird when they keep Leah Askey or that Judy Greer, who's playing mm -hmm. Leah Askey wonderfully goes, Joel, talks about Schwartz did this and Schwartz did that. Um, thankfully, I think Josh is doing an, an incredible job, and I don't know that I could ask for somebody better to be playing me. And it also was weird. 
there is much of it that uses the identical words that I used. Yeah, that's got to be really strange. It is strange. Now, there are parts of it, for example, I, there, I don't think there's a hotel called the Green Gables in Troy. If right. there is, I didn't stay there. <laughs> I didn't take my guitar in to right. see my well, client. Yeah, now, there's, there's a connection to that because Joel has a band, and I, you know, I didn't know the connection to that when I saw until I started doing a little bit of research here. You still have a band that's Joel's effing band, and you guys still go out and play, and you sing and play the guitar, right? That is correct. Yeah, see, I wish they would have had Josh do a little bit of strumming on the deal so it all connected to that. that well, Joel... jo I talked to Josh about that. Yeah. There, there were two things, and I've also talked to Jenny Klein, who wrote the show. Yeah. They call her the showrunner. They penned this for six weeks, and as they got it written, and produced, they wished they had at least two more weeks. I feel the same way. It, it didn't, it neglected to show my or Josh's emotional arc and the frustration and everything that mm -hmm. I was going to, which was crazy. And then things that were fun and, and a little bit funny and gave people information is they intended to film a thing with my band. Yeah. Uh, not me personally, but Josh yeah. having a band. Right. Josh and, being and, the guy. Yeah. And uh, all that type of things, all those types of things were left out. Yeah, and I've, I wanted to ask you what it was like being a part of, because you're the real person, and working with them, and I'm assuming you did that by Zoom because of the weird pandemic or whatever, but what was that all like, you being the guy? They want to know about the real stuff that happened and working with these actors and stuff. Did you feel like you were right there, networked in, and part of the deal? Without question. They wanted to know what kind of car I drove, what my daily routine was, what I had for breakfast. Yeah, what you like what, to drink. What I like to drink. <laughs> and they, they actually called the night that they were filming the scene. And it's crazy. I don't. There's a scene where Nate and Joel, Josh, are working together and they're drinking bourbon. Yeah. Well, they had called that night. I was actually sitting with my wife, Marianne, drinking a bourbon. And they said, what are you drinking? I said, bourbon. Bourbon. They went and got bourbon and that's what they <laughs> I love in it. the scene. So they, they attempted to be as And it's a cool scene. Could. You're in your library or wherever yeah. in the house and you guys are pouring bourbon and talking, talking shop. Yeah, it was, it was fun. They, uh, they, they took pictures of my house and they, a lot of people who have been to my house many times asked if that was actually the house. So they did a decent job of replicating that. Replicating everything. Mm -hmm. So, going back to the trial, it comes back in a terrible verdict. Uh, you know, Russ gets life plus 30 years. Um, he immediately is taken to state prison. Um, what do you, what's going through your mind now? You know that this is all a, a farce. Um, what, what were your immediate thoughts, uh, Joel, of what you were going to do? Everything I possibly could. Yeah. Um, I didn't just get an appeal ready. I actually got an appointment and spoke with the uh, governor's chief of staff and asked him to step in to waive the appeal and send this back because it was, it was blatant on its face mm -hmm. that this trial was a farce. And there was another case pending uh, regarding the direct connection rule. And if it doesn't go into detail too much in the book and certainly not much in the show, but the reason they did not allow me to get into Pam Hupp's inconsistencies and lies, which were I, I, numerous, uh, and the insurance proceeds, and I could show I could show by cell site cell site that she was at the scene of the murder at the, at scene the of time the murder. at the time of the murder, and she lied about it. I couldn't get into which is any just, of that. Just just like incredible. I think the other point that you bring up, 
about that insurance policy is what was it 11 years that he was on the insurance policy yes. and she was on it for four days. Yeah. What I said in closing argument is he was on it for 4,000 days yeah. and miraculously she was alive. Pam Hupp was on it for four, four days yeah. and she and, died and she died and Pam was the last one with her. And Pam was there based upon the testimony of the two first responders. Pam would have been there at the time. And when they questioned Pam where she was and we pinpointed her by cell site yeah. she said she was home yeah jury didn't get to hear any of that mm -mm. and that's what i presented to the governor's chief of staff and they I, they agreed with me but they weren't going to get involved at that point in time and fortunately uh, we came up with this moody motion and in my research most people who are convicted of crimes like this before they get overturned or appeals it's generally about 12 years it's a long time it's an extremely long time for an innocent man, for anybody to be locked up, mm -hmm. guilty or innocent. For yeah. an innocent man, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. We not only got this overturned incredibly fast, we were in a new trial in less than two years. That's how fast we got this thing back. So the original question was, what was I going to do? There was no stop that I wasn't going to pull out. What yeah. was Russ thinking in this time period? Was Had he given up hope, or was he totally 100% in Joel's camp that, Hey, he's going to get me out of here. What, what, what you know, cause there's, there's a couple of different things that happen in your mind when you go to prison. One is it's all over. I'm, I'm getting in a fetal position. Other people try to keep themselves busy and, and try to keep being themselves. I and mean, what, what was Joel's uh, mind? What was going through him? Russ's, Russ's mind was incredibly upbeat. He continued to have faith in me and, I have been told time and time again, Joel, it's, it's amazing how you stuck to it, how you persisted. And I, and I appreciate people saying that to me, but what's as important, if not more important, is that Russ continued to remain faithful to me. Mm -hmm. This was an innocent man who had got convicted. I was his attorney. and Frequently, people will turn on their attorneys, and they have to lay blame somewhere. Sure. And I was an easy target. He never lost faith. He was never down, and... He continues to say today, it was like going into a boxing match, literally with hands tied behind your back. Yeah. So he kind of understood it, even notwithstanding the individuals who in the penitentiary who were telling him, hey, you should get this woman, Kathleen Zellner, who was out yeah. of Chicago, and she's wonderful. Yeah. She got Ryan Ferguson out, and I think mm -hmm. Ryan was released the week that Russ went in. Okay. So I'm sure that had to be. I think that was Kathleen Zellner's like first big case, wasn't it, with Ryan Ferguson? Because I know Making a Murderer came after that, but... Yeah, I, I don't know if it was her first case. I mean, it, it was one that was big to Missouri because of Ryan's, uh, you know, that whole that whole case was beyond strange of a dream sequence of a friend that said that they thought they did this and Ryan ends up serving, you know, getting convicted for murder for life in prison. And that, that I mean, that he had, I think, 11 years in. And yeah. thank goodness for yeah. his father that produced this documentary. Just kept going. Just yeah. wouldn't give up. Yeah. So, so, you, so you go to Russ and... And I think this is interesting because I think it's gutsy, Joel, because there's two ways to go with this thing. You had been burnt by a jury in a bad way. Like, how in the world did they all get it wrong? Like, how could they have not seen it? So I know what you're thinking. But you decide that you get this second shot, second bite of the apple, and you're going to the judge as the juror to decide this case. The second guessing that had been going on behind my back was unending. And people said some stuff to me, but moreover, they were talking behind my back and it's like, what the hell Schwartz think he's doing? 
And a couple of friends of mine who are attorneys would say, don't you think Joel has a pretty damn good idea what he's doing? And the fact is, in these small towns, everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. And while the jurors at least said they didn't know Leah personally, Mm -hmm. people knew her family. They knew of her family. And individuals had stated afterwards that when they were interviewed, well, I've, I've known Leah's family forever. And if Leah really thinks this guy did it, well, he must have done it. Well, the judge we got was Steve Omer. And Steve Omer was a prosecutor in the city in the 80s for about a decade. He knows what a, what a, what a real case is. Mm-hmm. He, was, he had been a judge for about 20 years, I think, at the time, maybe a little bit longer. And I've been in front of him a bunch. And he, his integrity is without question. Um, and he knows what the law is. I knew what the facts were. And there was not a fact that was going to be debated. It was not whether or not he had to decide if a witness was lying right. or if a witness was mistaken. There was no fact, no provable fact whatsoever leading to Russ Faria. Right. So I didn't want the innuendo and the theories, on everything that Josh had talked about in his opening statement, because yeah. those were my actual words, mm-hmm. to cloud this case. And those were going to go nowhere with a judge like Omer. So I decided to take that risk. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and I'm thrilled that I did. No, it worked out. And, you know, I think you, I, I remember you talking about uh, one of your interviews. You, you've talked to your wife about it. You talked to the other defense attorneys about it, and you really just finally had to come to your own terms with, no, I'm just going with what is in the gut here, and I'm good. And, but I can see how you came to that. I do think that there is some scary propositions in a small town of, you know, you've got to convince those people, and if you, you'd you already been through it. You'd already experienced a very weird case, and they all got it wrong. It's not that they got it wrong. They're, they didn't get they, to hear it. They, they didn't get to hear it. Right. But what they also didn't hear was any fact specifically tying Russ Faria to this case. Right. The closing argument that Leah Askey made, and I still, I've never heard anything more unethical since I've been practicing law, is she just made up a story. I started out objecting, and then I sat back and I said, let her go just on. Just let her go. She, she's in effect, digging her own hole, and these jurors aren't going to buy any of this because not one thing she said was indicated provable during the facts of the right. trial. Right. So it was something where that taught me a lesson. Uh, and the second trial, her only argument to Judge Ober was, well, who else would have done it? And that was as far as it went because there wasn't a fact that she could hammer home. Well, let's go to the pictures because I think that's just fascinating how this happened because you didn't have i don't think you didn't know that those didn't come from uh the prosecutor ascii um they were labeled from her office stamped coming to you as as it should have so it didn't seem weird but then she gets up and actually starts her opening statement with the exact same story and then you realize immediately she doesn't know i have these pictures so, which is it, like a movie. It, it, it is now they're making it. It's it not like, like a movie. movie. It's not like a movie anymore. <laughs> and the pictures that you're referring to, uh, Major Case Squad disbanded without actually charging Russ. Seven days later, he was charged. But what occurred in the middle, t- middle of that is they did a search of the residence. It had been contaminated. It was no longer partitioned off. But they went in and they did a search. And in doing a search. They laid down what's called luminol, which will make blood glow. And then they said, and I didn't know anything about that search when we started this trial, and I didn't have a report on it. 
but that was their probable cause to actually take it over the top and charge Russ. So they claimed that they took pictures of this luminol, and it showed a trail that only the person in the home would know where these things were. There was a trail from the body to the blood, to the towel drawer, to take the dog outside, to the back bedroom where the shoes were found, and they took photographs. Unfortunately, the camera malfunctioned, so no pictures developed. It showed absolutely nothing on anything they took, and I was furious about this. Right. I was furious and objecting it during the first trial and that circus, and after the trial ended, I still continued to say, I want the camera. Mm-hmm. I want if you. I don't. I still don't understand. Whatever you have. Was there film that didn't develop? Yeah. How does it not? What happened? Deve- yeah, how does it not develop? Yeah. I had nothing on it, and I continued to every single time we got together. I would say to the judge, "I want this." I filed continued motions, and then one day, this was a trial was set for November, mid August. I got a CD in the mail from the Lincoln County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. Opened it up, and there was 132 photographs which confirmed that this officer perjured himself. Everything mm-hmm. he said was a lie. So I couldn't wait to cross-examine him. The surprise to me was when we started the trial, yeah. Leah Askey said the same thing. The camera, Unfortunately, the camera malfunctioned and none of the pictures developed. And I leaned over to Nate Swanson, my co-consul, and I said, she, she has doesn't no know. idea I have these. And we debated how it happened. There is no Tina uh, that I'm aware of in the office is portrayed in the movie. Okay. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I, I, there is no Tina. There okay. is no, but, but maybe there is a conscience in that Has office. Has to be. Well, there's another theory. Okay. The other theory was Leah was just lazy. Really? The cop said, hey, there's nothing on this. Just, let, just send she it. She just sent it. Okay. There was a signed letter. When I say signed, it was hand stamped with her signature, not, not actually signed. I still think someone in the office said, well, because there's another piece in the uh, NBC part that has her destroying the order to destroy the evidence from the trial that she puts through the shredder. So you've that here's what happened there. Okay, the, uh, there was a destruction order. Yes, and a sheriff decided on his own that this stuff should not be destroyed. Okay. And it was taken. This is fun, Joel, to see what it actually is. I didn't know that that girl didn't exist. So she she did not exist. That wasn't destroyed. What happened was a sheriff took the stuff to St. Charles, and that's where it was stored. Now, with that said, there was some stuff missing. So I spent quite a bit of time with Mike Wood and his investigators, making sure that they have everything that they should have in order to prosecute Pam Hupp now. And I hope I didn't just ruin it all for your listeners, but Pam Hupp is being prosecuted for this murder. Yeah, that's, and that's happening as we speak, really. That's, and and, and to, to go on with Pam Hupp, I mean, there's other things with Pam Hupp. You know, her mom falls off the ledge when she's saying that maybe she's going to take her off the, uh, the insurance policy. You know, she kills the guy that she wants to frame Russ for, and he's, he's got like a... a little stupid uh, note in his pocket. I mean, the things that she did, like, and I think you said this, if you don't put, Pam Hub could go kill somebody else if she's not put away. I mean, she's she's that type of person. If you've got an insurance policy, watch out. At the, uh, at the, after Russ was acquitted, I called Rich Callahan, who was the U.S. attorney, and I, the, there's only two people that have jurisdiction. That would have been Lincoln County, and Leah Askew certainly wasn't going to do anything. No. Um, that scene where Josh went in and said, hey, if you want to reopen this, I've got everything. I've got a lot of stuff. Yeah. That sort of happened, okay. but it didn't happen with her. Right. It, it happened with the U.S. attorney. Okay. I called Rich Callahan. I went down and met with some, and they opened an investigation. 
And I have been told that Leah did, in fact, inform Pam, as portrayed in the series, that there's a new investigation, and I think desperation set in at that point. And unfortunately, at that point in time, and it's never really been referred to this way, but Pam Hupp went hunting. Yeah. Louis Gumpenberg was the fourth individual she tried to get in the car. That's really something. It's scary. Yeah, she went hunting for a human being to kill. Uh, and she killed him. And she killed him. It Shot is, him as he came into her house. It's one way to put it. Yeah, she yeah. she had set the whole thing up. Yeah. And if you ha- if you've ever listened to that nine one one call, I may have not made it as an actor, and you may have not made it as a director, but she had no shot. No shot. Yeah. No. It it's it's, it's just the whole thing. I think. You know, Joe, looking at this whole thing as you've lived it, and you've been speaking to these basically sold-out crowds that want to hear this story from you and and how you lived it, what do you think the fascination is? It's, um, It's that car wreck that you can't take your eyes off of. It's it's also, look, this can't happen to me. Yeah. But what if it does? What if it, it happened? I mean, Russ Faria was a guy. He was working IT. Next door for neighbor. Enter- he was working IT for Enterprise. He, you know, they went out on the weekends. They went to church. Uh, he went out to see his buddies once a week. And then this happened. Yeah. He wasn't a guy on the streets. He wasn't, uh, he'd never been in trouble in his life. And then the fascination becomes, th- this was Murphy's law of the legal system. It, every stopgap that is in place from the investigators to the prosecutor to the courtroom, meaning the judge as well as the jurors, failed. Um, and I don't know whether you want to include me in that or not, but ultimately, at least initially, we failed in defending him because he was convicted. The fascination, I think, is the story itself, as you stated in your intro, it reads like fiction, it speaks like fiction. My uncle read the manuscript when we finished it, and he said, Joel, this is unbelievable if this was fiction, I would have put it down after a yeah. hundred pages because it can't be true. Right. Well, it's all true. Um, what's amazing is I, after the book was published, I took it to my two partners, Scott Rosenboom and John Rogers, and I gave them a copy and they both said the same thing to me. Do, do I really need to read this? I already know the whole story. <laughs> I gave them the book, they read it and they can't stop asking me questions yeah. about it because they, nobody, even including my wife, she goes, why? I didn't know that. Yeah. I was like, well, you don't. There's know. a lot more in the book than there is um, in the TV series, and there's a lot in the TV series, and I think it's a great TV series, but you get a lot more detail uh, of how things shake out and when moment to moment they happen, which is, um, you know, I always think reading a book is different than, than seeing something on TV or movies anyway. But Clearly. Um, well, the TV series is also the thing about Pam. It's Really, Pam's it's, point of view. Yeah, it's that, about Pam. That campiness, the satirical take, they, it's sort of Pam's mind. Yeah. I mean, it, her mind is different. Very different. And I think that's kind of the way they played this whole series out. You know, you got the Keith Morrison. It's almost a parody on Dateline. Uh, but the way that her personality is, I think that's the re- reason why they built it this way. Because she well, they, bounces around and does these weird things and sucks on her straw. And it's just... The whole personality. They, they told me the reason they, one of the reasons they were doing it this way was to grab attention. Uh, there's so much out there and there's yeah. so many options streaming to watch. As I watched the first episode, and I knew Keith was going to narrate it, yeah. um, it struck me that this is the Grinch who stole Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> that first <laughs> intro with Keith Morrison. It's like, okay, this is their take. And she is the Grinch. Yeah. 
She's the Grinch. And it 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 was more difficult to watch at the start, but as you kind of get, get into to it, the narrative, you do. And now people yeah. are the ratings have from episode one to two, the ratings run up four hundred percent. That's crazy. To rise. Yeah. Wow. I want to ask you a question, too, because I, I very rarely have, well, I haven't had a criminal defense attorney on the podcast, and we've had a lot of different guys uh, that have gone through and given their stories. I, I'm curious, Joel, of all the different people that you've represented, because 97% of the people who get indicted end up uh, pleading conviction. Have you, had, have you ever had someone that you've represented that went ahead and pled but you really felt like that they should have gone to trial because one, you guys practice for this. One of, the, one of the things that the judge asks you in state court, generally federal court, but not in so many words, is are you pleading because are you pleading guilty because you are in fact guilty? And many times the judge will say to me, to the attorney, do you have any reason why your client should not be entering a plea of guilty? I don't know if it's 10 percent. I don't know if it's 5 percent. But the answer to your question is yes. There's quite there's quite a few people who have decided, I just can't take that risk. And I firmly believe, knowing more than anyone else about the case, that this person should go to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and the figure that you talked about is, I think those are federal figures. They are. State state court is much lower conviction rate, yeah. um, especially in St. Louis City these days. Yeah. Uh, I have had many, many, many cases dismissed, and I think it's due to that I uh, you, know, you gain a reputation. It's not, and I'm not saying a reputation that they're scared of me in trial. What I'm saying is a reputation for honesty, sincerity. I work my ass off, and I think that it's so important to put the facts together. And if I'm coming to you and you're a prosecutor, and I say, Brent, this guy didn't do it. Well, if I'm just saying it, or and I don't have anything to base it on. Okay, it's in one ear, not the other. But I, I put it to you, and I know you know I'm going to try the case, and I also know you know. Once you see what I'm presenting to you, you're going to lose the case. Yeah. And so the case gets dismissed. Um, or it gets bargained down to something that's palatable to that somebody the client actually with. is guilty for. Yeah. So it's a long-winded answer to the question. The answer is yes. It's not that often, but it happens. And even if it's, say, 5%, well, I don't know the number of millions of people that are indicted every year, but 5% is a lot of people. A lot of innocent it's, it's people in, that go and, yes. and do their time. Yeah. Without question. Well, and, and I'm not going to name names, in, but there is a big case that's been kind of drifting around with a known prosecutor that held back information. You know, it's such a strange world that we live in when both sides are supposed to provide. And I mean, your job is to defend. Their job is to justice and to give you their whatever they have so that you can defend do you find that you run into times when you feel like you might not have gotten a fair shake from the other side? The problem we have is our system, which I think undoubtedly is the best in the world, is run by humans. Mm-hmm. And by human nature, you want to win. So you're going to have individuals who, as you correctly stated, my job is defense. I push the envelope within the bounds of ethics and legality as far as I can to defend my clients. As a prosecutor, your job is not to win. Your job is justice. If justice calls for this person being exonerated, that's why you're required to turn over these things. There shouldn't be a need for a defense attorney. Right. If you had a person who was completely unbiased as a prosecutor, they should be able to present both sides to a judge or jury or whatever the trier effect may be and let them decide 
based upon unbiased points of view. Let witnesses testify and let a jury decide. Unfortunately, you get prosecutors who are overzealous, and it's a uh, it's a very fine line. I am at the point in my career where I believe if a prosecutor intentionally hides evidence and it can be proven, and someone goes to prison, um, if it if a witness is threatened, coerced, whatever the case may be, if there's false testimony, pictures consciously, consciously withheld, something along those lines, and somebody does prison time, I don't see a reason why the prosecutor shouldn't face the same consequences. Yeah, and that's that's a good um, that's a good point, Joel, because I think as it sits, it mostly happens that there's a slap on the wrist um, and the, and they go on, and the, and you can read about all kinds of different books where this has happened. But I agree if 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 there's something that's been done where someone wasn't given the rights that they were supposed to have, and they go to prison, and it's, it's proven that that things were done wrong, there should be some more consequences or bigger consequences than really what happens in the, in the course of things. And I think you're, you hit the nail right on the head. I think the winning part of it is the tough part of it with our justice system, because winning also provides promotions and other things that happen with that. And uh, there's, I don't know, there's a way to shake that out. I just think that's just like you said, it's humans and, it's, it's that we do have the best system that there is, but it's not perfect. We had a civil suit in this case against the cops and Leah Askey in Lincoln County. Um, it worked in our favor, but the prosecutor, Leah Askey, was removed from the suit. She likes to say it was because she did nothing wrong, and that's not the case at all. She was removed from the suit because she had prosecutorial immunity. Prosecutorial immunity needs to be revisited. It does. And then that may fix the system. And I'm not saying not to give them some form of immunity, but there are bounds, and those bounds right now just simply go too far. I totally agree, Joel. So what else What what else have I not asked you that I wanted to ask you? We we can't encapsulate that in one interview. There's <laughs> there's too many more things. I love the, I mean, I love everything that's going on with you right now. I mean, and I think the other thing I, I really love about Joel, you're a family man. Uh, you do your, your band plan, you do a little acting and you get these great cases and you give it your all. And, you know, from my side of things, man, I wish there was, you, you could be duplicated and cloned a hundred times over because you're the kind of guy that, that you need standing in your corner when you're, you're living your nightmare and you're hoping that somebody's going to be there to fight your battle because that's what you do. You, you take on somebody and you help them fight their battle and you hope that that person gives everything. You hope that that person buys into you and, and wants to be on your team and be uh, with you as you step through your own nightmare. And that's, it's a, you, you carry, you know, it's a big deal and, and I appreciate what you do. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm fortunate enough to have gotten to a point where uh, the attorneys that I practice with in my office couldn't be better. My partner, Scott Rosenblum and Matt Fry. He's great. There, he, they, the guys couldn't be any better. So we have the luxury um, and the fortune of getting. Uh, well, yeah, I think you guys cases. have one of the best criminal defense firms in the, in the nation. I mean, as far as where you, the, the cases that you've had, the winning streak that you all have um, and uh, the respect that you guys have is, is incredible. And it continues on. I mean, I think you guys continue to get good cases, and you continue to do great work, and it's it's uh, it's great that you guys are in St. Louis. Well, it's kind of you to say, and I appreciate it. I know my partners do too. It, it's just something where I 
there's not a client I have where I don't attempt to put myself in their shoes. And most people will say, okay, you know what? He can spend the night in jail. What's the big deal? To me, if I had to spend the night in jail, having never been on your side, that is a nightmare to me. I don't yeah. know. I, I don't to this day know what it's like. I got caught in the jail once. And I spent about four or five hours before they got me out, but I knew I was getting out. Yeah. I really, I, I can do my best to empathize. Yeah. But I simply can't put myself in those shoes. So I defend everyone like that one night matters, that week matters, that year matters. And it does. Um, I know it does. Um, but it's also, you know what? Look, the difference is, and you have to understand, and you know this actually better than I do having been through it. I try and explain to clients, somebody doesn't want to plead guilty, and they need to because they're going to do three years. And that sounds like forever, especially if you're 25 years old. But if you go to trial and you're going to do 15 years or 20 years and you're going to take that risk, sometimes it's really, really the wrong decision. You have to have an attorney who you trust, whereas it seems it's going and going in. And I would imagine most people like this, that I'm never going to make it three years. Yeah, I'm going to harm myself. I'm going to do something that I shouldn't do to avoid facing this. And I have clients who I used to represent and they are so good to my current clients that they are always willing to come talk to them and talk them through that fear that they go through, which is why I think your book is incredible because I've recommended, I I have to admit, I haven't read it yet, but I know the concept of it and I've recommended to a couple of clients that are going through this right now. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I do think that there's, um, one of the things I can say, and I, I think this is important for people to know with your mind, nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be, not even prison. So you can get through it. You just have to step through it. And it's um, as long as you keep stepping through it, you'll make it through it. And I think it's a, a, a great uh, idea and, and purpose that you have in having people talk to other people to walk them through that because somebody who's been through it can walk somebody through that to, to – and I really do believe that nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be, not even prison. Even when you're standing at the gates of Leavenworth, if you have some strategies, you can walk through it. Not that you're not going to have bad days, but you will survive. And survive and adapting is what it's about. Yeah, I can't talk somebody through it the way you can or anybody else. I've never lived it. I can't imagine. I mean, when you went in, you knew it was finite. Yeah. Russ Faria went in. He knew it was life, for life. With life. With life without parole. He was never going to see the light of day. And he's talked to many, many of my clients and the faith that he's given them uh, with what he faced. It, it's incredible. And, and I just, and he's, he's one among many of my old clients yeah. who have, my clients have become, a lot of them have become my friends yeah. and they will do whatever it takes to help one of my current clients knowing what they went through. I think that's great. I think it's a great way to end it. Cause that's, that is so great to hear that really you've bonded back and forth and then those people are using their experience to help others. And I think that is very, very, very cool for those who need to get out and either get on Amazon or go to Barnes and Noble here locally, check this book out bone deep. This is a hot, hot book. Cause it, I mean, this is a hot, hot topic. Um, Joel's out everywhere speaking and the places are filling up. I said, you're just going to Vegas here. Uh, when? Two weeks. Two uh, weeks from now, big, 15, big crowd. 1,500 seats sold out. Oh, man. It's been crazy. That's just so much, so much fun. And you, you've, you've earned it, man. I think it's so cool. Uh, for those um, listening, 
love the likes and the subscriptions. And if you like it, leave a review. Bone Deep, Joel Swartz. If you want to read another book, I wrote one too, Nightmare Success. Check them out. Thank you for being here today. Nightmare Success in and out.